Welcome to Arcade Attack. A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. It's Adrian here from Arcade Attack, and on today's show, I talked to Simon Phipps. He went into so much detail about his amazing career that we actually decided to split his pod into two parts. So part one, he talked about his early career, how he got into the industry, his work on Rick Dangerous 1 and 2, and Shadow Man. appreciate it. I'm just wow I'm just noticing the helmets in the background are they from Star Wars uh yeah it's one of my um kind of there we go uh one of my sort of little hobbies that I kind of accidentally went into that's amazing um when I turned 50 or at least the year before I did uh, my <laughs> wife Jane turned around and said what do you want to do for your 50th <laughs> and I was like well we're not going to go on some big crazy holiday and uh, I'm not going to throw myself out of a plane or bungee jump or anything like that kind of thing. So I thought, well, um, I'll just, just let's go away for a little while. So anyway, that went a bit quiet. And then uh, a few weeks later, as, uh, Jane turned around and went, this Star Wars celebration convention thing in, um, in London next, uh, next summer, do you fancy going? And I was like, well, it gives us three days away in London, which we always love exploring. Yeah. The kids won't want to come and, I was big into Star Wars as a kid and stuff like that kind of thing. And um, if it's rubbish, we've got three nights away in London. Let's give it a go. So she bought the tickets. And then um, a few weeks went by and I was like, you know what? Never been to any one of these kind of conventions or anything like this kind of stuff. Um, It'd be really rubbish if we turned up in jeans and T-shirt and everybody else is cosplaying and and everything like that. Um, So I said, well, we ought to come up, you know, at least participate in it. It wouldn't be fun. Yeah. And then it was like, what are we going to do? And I thought, well, I think I could probably build as a Mandalorian. It's like, okay, as long as it's purple, I'm, I'm all right. But I'm, I'm in. Let's give it a go. You know, how do you do it? I was like, well, I'm sure I can figure it out. So I did a little bit of Googling and found the Mandalorian Mercs costuming club, signed up to their forum and said, hello. And they went, here's the templates and this is how we do it. And so kind of, for the next sort of nine months or so, started to build in my spare time a um, couple of sets of Mandalorian armor nice. um, with the helmets and everything. Started off, the original helmets were, uh, we took skate helmets, PVC um, uh, sort of board, uh, stuff called Omex or Sintra in the US, heat guns to bend it around the thing, loads of car body filler, loads of sand and everything. I made the helmets and I was like, okay, if I can make the helmets, if I can make the gauntlet. So then downloaded some templates off the internet, which were kind of for Epicura, which is where you take paper, glue it together and, uh, and stuff like that. And I actually translated those into yeah. uh, 
built two sets of gauntlets, one for me and Jane. It was like, right, this is this is this is on. So then went through, built knees, built chest armor and things like that. And then with the advice of the guys on the boards, um, they are very very good at sort of helping you tailor the plates to your body. So you look at whatever body shape you are, whether you're tall, fat, thin, short, or whatever, yeah. you're going to look as possible. It's not going to be thin. So with their advice, built these two sets and uh, yeah, went along to Star Wars Celebration in 2020, when it was, when I was 50, you know, two years ago. And um, that was our first cosplaying experience. And we, we spent three days in kit, hanging out with all the, yeah. the uh, Merck's cosplayers got pulled into some of their panels showing off the uh, stuff we'd done and made a huge bunch of friends from all across the globe, had an amazing time. And then um, it all sort of rounded itself off um, at the sort of final end of the, the day. We, we had a meal that was booked uh, to uh, with all the cosplayers from around the world that come together in this little sort of harvester just uh, next to the convention center. And we kind of sitting sit there meeting everybody with the helmets off for the first time, chatting to him and all this lot, looks across and turns around and goes, who I think it is? <laughs> like, that's Dave Filoni, the guy who directs and created the Clone Wars and wow. Rebels TV series. Can I talk to him? So Jane goes up and chats to him, get on with him, and what a lovely guy. Absolutely, he could have been anywhere in the whole, mm. you know, with all his Hollywood mates happy in London and this, that, and the other. He actually opted to join all the scruffy lot uh, in this uh, little um, little harvester, and we had an amazing time. And so, since since then, for the past two years, we've hooked up with a load of different costuming groups. And then, what we do is um, every you know a, a few weekends a year, causes you know sort of thing. So you kind of get to be a, um, a, a, a you know kind of like a, a costume character from Star Wars um, doing the stuff. These these helmets here are kind of my second generation. This one I actually built uh, from scratch using, but the original model is uh, made from pasteboard and yeah. resin to car body filler. Uh, and then this is actually a um, cold cast aluminium fiberglass and carbon fiber casting from it. Um, so yeah, totally solid uh, and everything. So this is my sort of second generation helmet and that's my wife's. And what I actually found that we're in this costuming community and now I've got the time, I actually build these things on the side as well. So I've got a little sort of, uh, um, every so many, uh, uh, so many weeks I'll get an order in and uh, build props for uh, for folks. So yeah, I've got all the various different bits and pieces. Incredible. Uh, crazy stuff like, um, wait a second, I'm trying, trying not to break this. Um, <laughs> kind of making things like that, which oh, is a wow. space gun. This is entirely made out of... Uh, MDF and PVC uh, and stuff, but uh, yeah, it kind of does the job and looks uh, pretty pretty badass. It's actually based on the design for the um, 1313 Souls game that's made. Um, so yeah, so I've, I've, um, over the past sort of two two and a half years, I've kind of gone back to doing you know in my spare time yeah, yeah. doing something I did as a kid because I kind of uh, grew up. I was the perfect age for Star Wars. Star Wars hit when I was eleven. Yeah, I. Um, Saw the movie in February, March of 78 when it came out of here and then kind of spent my uh, early time kind of building spaceships out of balsa wood, plastic card and little bits of model kits on top and spraying and stuff like that. I always wanted to uh, uh, to, to kind of do that, make movies or something rather. This is going to lead ultimately into how I started in games. 
but interestingly, so it's now I've, I've kind of uh, got this sort of little hobby where I'm yeah. uh, t- uh, selling sort of like um, replica helmets. Uh, that's uh, afforded me to buy three. Uh, yes, it's really nice to be playing in, with, with materials in the real world as well as uh, you know, stuff in the virtual. But anyway, yes, sorry. That will start <laughs> leading into, into, into your whole sort of interview and stuff. So um, I, I, will, I will stop. We can talk about this afterwards. If you want. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel a bit sorry for our listeners because obviously it's a podcast. They can't see what I'm seeing, but I assumed uh, these, were, these were movie props. They look unbelievably high quality. So. Oh, thank Fair you very play. much. I say I've got some some shots on my website. If you go onto simonphipps.com and yeah. under the props tab, I've got some photos and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the, this um, this is all cold cast aluminium. So yeah. what you do is you make a big pink silicone mold with a big mold jacket around it. Line the um, uh, line the mold with um, aluminium powder. And then you mix up a combination of resin and more aluminium powder and a black pigment. Pour that in and then do a process called rotocasting, where you take this mold, which is yeah. like a big um, pudding basin, effectively, and roll it around in your, uh, in your hands until it coats the inside. That then settles the outer skin. And then over the next sort of few hours, you then lay in layers of resin and fiberglass and carbon fiber powder to actually uh, the helmet. Leave it to cure overnight peel it off, and then what you've got is you've got uh, an outer skin of, um, of aluminium powder, which you then polish up using uh, wire wool, and then uh, go through a process of applying uh, various layers of paint. And then the, the trick with, the, with this kind of Mandalorian look is to um, make them look like they've been in a Star Wars. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of process to do with actually putting down um, masking fluid onto the various different edges and stuff that you want to show through as metal spray painting over the top, so you spray paint a primer like you would do a base coat for real metal, because it is real metal. Um, apply a bit more masking fluid on top of that where the, the uh, to where the primer will show through underneath the top coat and you spray top coat. Eventually you peel all this masking off and you get this wonderful layered effect of metal with primer with chipped paint on top of it, and then go, go in there and then apply um, various different sort of like uh, acrylic uh, color washes to make it dirty and actually the other one that uh, i like is espresso coffee cold espresso <laughs> coffee just looks like engine oil and yeah. stuff like that put that in then try and clean that all off and what that does it leaves all the dirt and the fake dirt and grime in all the corners which pops out all the detail that makes it like it's it's a real thing that you polish and uh, and i, I love it because it's it's so um it's so different mm. From uh, kind of uh, from uh, from what I do on, on the screen, but there's still an awful lot to uh, to, uh, to do on the screen and stuff. So, so yeah, that's uh, that's the thing. But yeah, as I was on my website, I've got like a, a props tab, and actually on my Instagram and Facebook art page, I, I post a combination of um, stuff from the games I've worked on, uh, personal art commissions, um, sort of freelance commissions that I do in my spare time. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, that's incredible. I'll definitely. Uh, definitely uh, tell any listeners now to check out your website just to see these props. Absolutely incredible. Um, Thank you. Yeah, is it all right? To, should we get into the gaming then? Is that all right? Yes, absolutely. Please fire away. I'm here for you. Just ask me questions and I'll keep on talking. I just love you're chatting right. to people about stuff. So no, you're real I'm generally. quite happy. Fire away. I appreciate it. Um, 
What's your? I mean, you spoke about Star Wars there. You know, growing up. What was your earliest memories of video games though? Were growing up? What was your first console or video games? Okay. Right. Well, say so if we go Star Wars. Star Wars was uh, when I was eleven, so that was uh, nineteen seventy eight. That was seeing Luke Skywalker doing his stuff, yeah. building uh, model kits uh, and, and spaceships and things like that kind of thing, and wishing that one day I could be. Um, flying an X-Wing and <laughs> pretending to be Luke Skywalker. Um, cut to 1979 at the swimming baths, playing Space Invaders for the first time, and uh, seeing that come out and thinking, wow, this is incredible. Yeah. Uh, and then kind of going forwards to uh, 1981, mm. uh, playing, um, there was a, a, a kind of a text and ASCII character-based sort of TIE fighter shooter on the Commodore PET in the uh, uh, school computing club classroom. I forget the the exact name of it, uh, but it was kind it totally wasn't licensed, but it was just, you know, a green Commodore PET uh, um, black and white display kind of thing with uh, text characters having um, high fighters coming up from a little tiny H to a full screen Commodore graphic, uh, text graphic kind of representation, you firing away. And I remember the sort of the computer club being a bit about that and a bit about learning practice. Uh, and then in 81, my best friend at the time, uh, Philip Basker, um, called me around and said, I've got to come around to, to, to my house and see this. Me and my dad have built a computer. So I went around and he showed me his 1K ZX81. So, uh, him and his dad had built it from uh, a kit that you could purchase in a, like Electronics Weekly or something like that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and there it was, plugged into a black and white telly, um, 1K Space Invaders, where every time it updated the screen, the screen burst to static and then it flipped back on. And I remember playing it and, and, and going, sorry, can you change what the aliens look like at the moment? They're a little less raised. It's like, yeah, you can do. I can go in there and change it, make them like H or Eyes or, or a star or something like that. And that was the thing that made me think, wow. Mm. I'd grown up. I'm loving cartoons and animation, and I'd always wanted to, you know, kind of, I remember 1974 on BBC One, first thing in, uh, on, a, on, a, on a morning, there was the Bob Codfrey cartoon animation show where um, the guy who created Rhubarb and all those kind of con- cartoons of the early 70s for BBC had a, I think it was like a six-part show where he showed you um, uh, different types of animation. It was one which was cut-out animation, which was about Terry Gilliam and how he worked, um, his stuff, which is all marker pens. Um, and I can remember, um, as it Peter Lord, showing you kind of morph plasticine. I'd always wanted to do that. But growing up, we'd never been able to afford a cine camera or film or anything like that kind of thing. Yeah. The most I've ever done was made kind of, you know, kind of my own spaceship models and taken photographs with Polaroid with them or something like that. So 81, I see the Spectrum, I'm like, wow. Mm. Art that I can put on screen and move. So um, at that point, I was doing a paper round and saved up all my money and uh, planned to get an Acorn Electron. Stuff. May of 82. And my parents were like, there's a new one coming out from the BBC. One, we'll pay the extra money so you can have that. It was like, wow, because, you know, say it was a. Uh, 299 for a BBC Model A back then, which current uh, money would be insane. Yes, yeah. 
thousand, you know, something like that kind of thing. But anyway, my mum and dad chipped in. I took all my paper round money, and on my birthday in May of '82, uh, BBC more later, when I'm right, I switched this on. I've got to do something with it. I've got to do, and also it was that kind of thing of the you're not going to be getting it to playing games. It's like hell no. I want to. I want to make them good. Uh, so uh, I just sat around um, trying to teach myself how to code. Mm-hmm. Um, got the old uh, your computer out and looked at the listings, the BBC guide to programming and stuff. And one of the great things about the uh, BBC Micro had all these wonderful colours. So for the first time, I could go. I want something that's red. It wasn't like taking the back of your of your um, belt it pens and scribbling all over a big area of, of of paper trying to get a nice solid red. I could just go bang and yeah. that was red on screen. So learning how to um, with various you know sort of like draw badly with uh, a couple of potentiometer joysticks and art packages and stuff like that. And gradually, I was like, okay, then what I'll do is I'll write my own game. So uh, version of Pac-Man, version of uh, Lunar Lander or something like that kind of thing. And around about that time, um, through various different sort of connections and contacts, I've got a Saturday job at um, a um, computer shop in Derby called First Point. Yeah. Which was kind of pub for all of the um, the sort of hobby computer geeks at the time. So I was kind of working there on a Saturday in my spare time doing all this sort of stuff. And actually, and this is kind of one of the things, first ever kind of published game was after the BBC Micro had come out. Um, the guys in the shop said, well, what we'd like to do is put together some games so we can cash in on that because there aren't many games for the BBC apart from Planetoid and Snapper and stuff like that kind of thing. Yeah. So actually, one of the, the, my first published game, and I've still got to put this on my website, is actually was this one here, which is Star Force Lander, ah. which was my basic, BBC basic kind of like uh, Lunar Lander game in three colours, um, which uh, they uh, they put out on cassette and we sold a, a, a few hundred copies or something like that kind of thing. Nice. But like, wow, that was the, the, the way in. Um, so I'd written, a, um, so, uh, you know, sort of versions of all of your, you kind of uh, games in basic, but the only problem was is the fact that using the B as it was, you could only kind of put, uh, you couldn't, you know, put anything more than coloured characters on the screen. So you your your enemies, your spaceships, all had to be a single colour. Yeah, so made me jump into machine code, which was um, to learn sixty five oh two, the assembler that was on the, uh, the BBC, to actually plot coloured sprites. Um, one of the great things about the BBC Micro was the fact that you could write in BASIC and then in line within the BASIC you could write pieces of assembler code as well. So I cut my teeth in writing machine code in writing kind of a, um, a sprite display routine. That allowed me to write BASIC logic driving multicolored sprites that were in the machine. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of my next thing. So I was like, okay, then. I'm uh, writing uh, writing a game in my spare time, and I'd seen recently at that point Jetpack by um, uh, as was then ACG actually Computer Graphics played the game Jetpack. So I wrote a little sprite editor, um, made a little guy with a jetpack and bits and put together a very very simple single screen platform fly around the screen, avoiding like everything because it was all death. Pick up a little fuel pot on one side of the screen. And go back and take it back to a waiting UFO on the other script of Zig. Yeah. Things. And uh, I started writing that. And my best, uh, my other best friend at, uh, at uh, school was a guy named Stu Gregg. 
Stuart um, ended up working in the games industry for lots of time afterwards. Um, but he used to come around and it was kind of, uh, uh, we'd sort of uh, do bits and pieces of programming together and stuff like that, play Chucky Egg and just hang out. And I'd been writing this game for a few months and he was like, oh, you should stick that on a tape and see if you can send it off somewhere and get it published. Yeah. Like, yeah, go on. I was like, all right then. You think so? He's like, yeah, go on. So I put it on a tape and sent it out to a couple of places. Take a sip of coffee. <laughs> so I sent it out to um, ANF Software and Micropower, or Program Power as it was back then. Yeah. ANF Software came back with a rejection letter saying, well, because your game isn't 100% machine code, we can't publish it because our protection system requires all games to be 100% machine code. So right. like, okay, fair enough. Um, Program Power came back and um, said, here's a list of 10 things we'd like changing, but if you could do those, we'll be happy to publish it. I was like, get in. So I took took on their, their feedback, made the changes, reduced the number of levels, did various different pieces, I think put a high score table in, a few bits and pieces. And yeah, so there I am doing my A-levels and I published a game whilst I was working at a computer shop in Derby and, and stuff, and that was fantastic. Um, that went on to uh, that was the, the game, name of the game was Jet Power Jack. Yeah, um, they'd been inspired, I think, by John Williams' game Jet Boot Jack. Ended up working with John Williams many years later, um, um, and uh, so yeah, so that, that that went on, and I ended up doing a conversion for the Acorn Electron as well, um, and they got Gary Partis to do a Commodore sixty four version of the game. So that was kind of my first foray into to game publishing. Good stuff. Um, which was really cool. I was, I was kind of 17, 18, and it was like, I, well, I, I make a thing, and you give me money for it, and it's stuff. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, I was uh, doing my A-levels. I, I'd kind of, um, I've always been very artistic, but I've also got kind of like that logical kind of brain, so I can kind of step both at feel. Mm. Um, I ended up kind of coming out of my O-levels, or what uh, really good art qualifications, but really good maths and science uh, yeah. qualifications. And it was, what do you want to do for your A-level? So I was like, well, can I do computing, please? And it was like, well, it's only half an A-level. And because you've chosen maths, physics, and chemistry, because art's not a real subject and won't get you a job, <laughs> um, uh, you can't timetable it. So I was like, okay, then. So I can't do art, which we, was kind of one of those things that, that you, you don't become an artist. No, you, there's no jobs in that. Yeah. And, uh, so, and computing, it clashed with all the timetables. So I ended up doing maths, physics, and chemistry. Well... I hated all of them, hmm. um, did a miserable job of them, and spent most of my time during my pure maths teaching my maths teacher how to code because ah. he was running the computer course, which fell in the lessons after my last lesson. <laughs> time in the in the computer lab doing this kind of thing. So yeah. I crashed out of my A-level. Miserable results. Um, and I have been intending to go on to university to um Computer science, hmm. um, but my backstop was doing um, computer studies at Trent Polytechnic, just in in Nottingham, because they'd got a, a much lower bar. And I kind of went along. And actually, to be honest, out of all the places that I've ever been to, this was the really friendliest one. Nice. Uh, it wasn't really surly. It wasn't some kind of. I remember going down to um, oh the uh, university down south. Oh, crikey. Um, Get now, it was the place that they filmed Clockwork Orange. Okay, uh, you know, kind of down down down, uh, down south, um, the university there. It was this blasted concrete, brutalist mm. nightmare, and I thought, 
I want to come down here. So actually, when I went to to um, uh, to Trent Polly and they were like, hello, have a cup of tea. How are you? And all this kind of stuff. I was like, I'm in. So I did um, three years uh, at Trent Polly um, and absolutely loved it. It was kind of 1980s computing. So I was learning COBOL and Pascal and learning about networking and all of this kind of system architecture. Um, and one of the cool things about it was everybody that um, Polly industry so yeah. you're always having somebody that said when i was at ici we did it this way or when i was yeah. at the name of other companies so you always had that kind of it wasn't too abstract it was always grounded in something practical and i i absolutely stormed through my first uh, first year second year of my computer studies was to actually do a year in industry Brilliant. and they actually turned around and said well we've got an opening for you at ibm which <laughs> you know ibm in the 80s was like going to work for google or apple yeah, yeah. Is brilliant, cool, where, how, whatever. So, well, actually, it's an opening in the Nottingham office, like, even better. I don't have to live away or anything like that kind of thing. Um, but it's not in, in any programming capacity. I was like, okay. Uh, and they're like, well, your programming is good enough anyway. So, you're not, we've not got a problem there. So, we'd be happy to, to offer you it. And I was like, okay, what is it? But what I ended up doing was working um, for IBM for a year in their marketing um, department. So in the big kind of like 80s corporate office environment, pink tie, you know, kind of, uh, kind of thing, doing uh, all sorts of, you know, kind of 80s power stuff, yeah. uh, all the salesmen and everything um, at IBM, shifting out PCs. And uh, basically, I was part of one of the marketing programs team, which was kind of like a, a bunch of uh, temp workers under a really lovely manager and um, students and some YTS uh, guys as well who were just fresh out to school at 16. Mm. And what we were for was when they were doing a sales event, making sure that everything was sorted out. So from catering to the hardware to the software and all that kind of stuff. So what I ended up doing was spending a lot of time taking apart IBM PCs, putting in boards, putting them back together again, loading up software and doing all of that stuff for a year and earning some money as well doing it. And it was, it was great. And for like a year to have had that experience, mm. I wouldn't have, you know, had that experience connecting with so many people in and out of the thing, writing newsletters and doing all sorts of like office job stuff, which I hadn't experienced before. Yeah. During that year, I actually uh, um, was out one night and met my wife, Jane, wife to be Jane, uh, back then in 85. Um, so I finished the, finished that year and they all kind of said, oh, do you want to come back afterwards? I was like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> Went and did my year at, uh, at uh, Trump, uh, final year at Trent Poly and came out actually head of the year with a distinction and all sorts of cool stuff, which was terrific. Yeah. Um, and then it was kind of like, what do you want to do in, uh, you know, as a real job? Well, I'd gone back to working at First Bite in my, on my Saturdays and everything. And uh, at that time, a little crew of people that uh, sort of hung out were Chris Shrigley, Rob Toon, Andy Green, Terry Lloyd, all were sort of like, friends of mine that I'd made through the shop and those guys had at that point got together and written Bounder mm. the 64. Now those guys had written Bounder using a monitor, not a, an assembly thing, literally a monitor. So sitting there writing down the 6502 and then hand converting it to numbers and then typing those numbers in and they got an entire game out of that. Wow. Picked up by um, uh, Gremlin Graphics in Sheffield uh, to do that, which was just an astonishing thing, you know, mm. sort of thing. Not only in the fact that they'd all got jobs out of it and they were working, making making games, like 1985, 86, 
um, as a full-time career, um, but also this staggering kind of thing of writing a whole game using a monitor, which is, yeah. you know, because even Terry had had to have drawn all the graphics on um, <laughs> on paper and converted all the pixels to to uh, to, to bytes and typed all the things in, which is just insane, and they managed to do that. Um, so. Yeah, those guys have gone off and doing that. I've been doing my Saturday job and I was kind of gearing up to, okay, I've had this three amazing years talking about serious computing. What can I do? Mm. I thought, well, I'll, I want to do something at least graphical. Excuse me. Let's go a sip of coffee before it gets too cold. Yeah. Mm. And um, there was a local outfit called Laser Maker, which is just in my hometown. And those guys had sort of set up and what they did was they did, um, well, they wanted desktop publishing software. Um, they ha- were working with big typesetting machines because back, back then you needed like a £20,000 dedicated terminal to program a typesetting machine and actually get all your fonts and kerning and, and layouts done to actually be able to uh, print out. And what they wanted was somebody to come in and build them a graphical interface that you could run on a PC, but yeah. a fraction of the cost, you know, even back then. One and a half thousand pounds for a PC with some software to drive the, these things. So I went in there, and um, I can distinctly remember this. This dates it. We're looking at a three button, uh, three button mouse, and going. So how do you how do you interface with these things? Right click at that point had never been invented. Yeah. And sitting there with one of them, trying to work out. Okay, well you click and drag and all this kind of stuff. So I ended up coding in BCPL. And writing a mouse and kind of Windows interface because mm. uh, at that point Ventura Publisher had just come out on the Mac and it was like, look at that, do what they're doing and everything. So I was working on that for about four or five months and uh, I can remember it's kind of coming on to winter and I was sort of sat in this little tiny cube farm with far too effective AC most of the time freezing and yeah. sort of thing. This is all right, but. Most of the conversations I'm having about are about the sort of efficiency of a linked list. Every, mm. and then I uh, got a phone call just out of the blue from uh, Terry Gremlin. Hi, Simes. Yeah, are you still drawing and stuff? I was like, yeah. <laughs> well, we need somebody to do graphics for Masters of the Universe, the movie, <laughs> REST. Um, I'm doing it for the Commodore and all the other formats, but we need another person to chip in. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a freelance thing, but would you be interested? I was like, hell yeah. yeah. At that I bought um, an Atari ST. I'd kind of gone, the route I'd gone was BBC Micro, yeah. Amstrad CPC 464, because I could get the Maxim cartridge in there and actually code Z80 in basic like I could do. Never kind of got anywhere. And then uh, many uh, then years later, my friend John Kirkland, who was a schoolmate and also went to introduced me to the Atari, and so I, I got out the Atari ST, and I was like, right, okay, then this is what I'm going to do. So drew various different sort of uh, bits and pieces using Dagar Elite, which was that, uh, the uh, paint package that, that was kind of like, you know, it was one of the first paint packages. Yeah. Uh, put it all on a disc and uh, went round one sort of, sort of uh, yeah, that was it. One, one evening, we had to drive out to... Uh, where Terry lived at the other side of Derby in a snowstorm. Um, he and uh, my fiance then, Jane, hanging onto this disc for dear life as we kind of get to Terry and go, here you go, here it is, drive all the way back. A uh, couple of days went by and it's like, do you want to come in and meet everybody? I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So after work, jumped on, uh, jumped in the car, drove all the way up to Saxon House in Derby 
and uh, went in there. And this was the Gremlin Graphics office where we had the likes of uh, Greg Holmes and Dave Bridmore, uh, Rob Toon, Andy Green, uh, Shrigley, uh, Terry Boyd, all working for Gremlin at that time because they'd, they'd been working up in Sheffield. Yeah. The commute from here to uh, Sheffield is about sort of 40 minutes, about 40 miles. And it was like, well, we all come from Derby. We're all jumping in the car. Couldn't we just get an office, uh, you know, closer to home? So actually, they've got this little tiny office inside a, you know, one of those kind of uh, multi-part business kind of centre, Derby. Yeah. And uh, there they were working away on um, Jack the Nipper 2, I think, and um, Master of the Universe. So I met those guys and Kevin Norman. Uh, who was one of the co-founders of Gremlin, and we just got on a house. I did. That, like, that was lovely. Mm. Met those guys. Looks like fun. And I get a phone call. Uh, do you want a job? I was like, <laughs> wow. What, a full-time job? Yeah. So I was like, okay, so I get a full-time job to go and make games and all this kind of thing. Went to and said, right, what do you think? She went, well, give it a go. Give it a go. If it all goes, what's it, creep? Um, you can always just back away and go back into serious computing, you know, yeah. something. You know, might as well do. Um, it's not going to hurt. So uh, that's what I've been doing for the past 30-odd years. <laughs> it's amazing. It's a great, a great tale. Thank you. Oh, I really appreciate that, Simon. It's a great tale about perseverance, you know, making contacts and just working hard and taking opportunities. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I say that, that's kind of like one of those sort of things that I – you know, kind of sort of um, think of. And it was, it was quite interesting. I was, I was watching uh, a piece with Kevin Smith yeah. the other day on one of his podcasts. And uh, he actually was saying that his, um, he, he always got advice from his sister when he was putting together his uh, first movie. Mm. It was like, look, you're a filmmaker. You, you just haven't had your film made yet. Mm. And I guess looking back on it, that's kind of the attitude that I'd always had, which was I'm a games maker. I am just going to do it. And in fact, actually, thing that I've learned is just get on and do it. Just put in the work, put in the hours, keep doing it yeah. because until you keep doing it, you don't know whether you can do it. And and also the other one as well is that you will level up. Um, mm. Back in uh, 2009, um, we'll go back and talk about my career. In this, you know, back in 2009, I really wanted to take up digital art yeah. because I had a huge uh, period of time where I'd not made any art on the computer. Um, and I thought, well, how do I do this? I was like, well, first of all, I'm just going to concentrate on drawing. So it was literally every night sitting yeah. there with a with a uh, with a drawing pad, drawing something. And I wanted, the promise I made to myself was, whatever I do, I actually finish the drawing I've started. Yeah. Because I, every, everybody who's a, a, an artist has got reams of um, sketch pads where you've got an eye or an ear or a leg or something or other or a bit of a tendril or something yeah. and then you're on to the next page and I was like no I'm going to do this so I filled the sketchbook with kind of drawings of pinups and things like that kind of thing that were completely nothing to do with making games but mm. were just like this is real I know this is really hard to do so I'm just going to keep on doing it what I did was I sketched it inked it coloured it in and what happened was I realised that by going through the full cycle of that um, although I may have started with a bad drawing I'd also kind of ranked up my colouring or my line work. Mm. So when I had a better drawing, I was already in a better position to finish it off. So I kept doing that. Mm. Then uh, made the switch to, right, okay, then I'm going to use a digitising tablet. I'm going to scan these things in. I'm going to colour them in using Photoshop. So I did that. Yep. 
And then basically that was the pathway forward to doing, uh, you know, gaining my own confidence with art. And so therefore it's like, okay, I can, I can draw this, I can do this kind of stuff. And actually, um, you know, over, over the past 10 years, getting more involved in the art side of games because yeah. I've had to kind of away because I became a designer for a long while uh, and stuff. And, and really it is, you know, all about doing that. And the other side of that as well is to say to any of your listeners, if you ever want to get in the games industry, just put in the work, yeah. you know, kind of thing. Whether it's, you know, kind of the, the tools are out there. Yeah. And get Unity. You can get Unreal for free now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 3D packages, paint packages, Blender is as good as uh, anything that you're going to need uh, to, to build uh, for, uh, for a game. Uh, you know, there's uh, countless um, art packages out there that don't cost anything, yeah. uh, you know, sort of thing. GIMP, for one of them, is as good as, uh, uh, you know, it's got 90% of what you need Photoshop, and at kind of 50 quid, you can pick up Affinity Photo or Clip Studio, which are amazing paint packages. And just get on and make your own stuff. You can do it and do it and do it. You can self-publish now. You can put it on a uh, an Android phone. You can put it on a PC. You can and keep doing it. And once you gain that experience, once you've ranked up, knock on the door of your favorite games publisher and go, hey, I made this. Mm. Can I talk to you? Mm. And you'll learn. And, you know, sort of thing. And, and you know, on the thing, over the years of, of uh, interviewing folks, um, all roles, the guy that comes in and goes, I really love your games. I've made this. I've done this. I've made this. Yeah. Is always going to get a hearing over somebody who goes, I have all of these qualifications, yeah. zero, zero experience, or I've played all of these games, yeah. but I want you to give me the opportunity to work on them. It's like, no, you really, really want to. And ironically, it was my, uh, my son is just in his final year of computer studies. And one of the things I was like, you want to work in games? Right. Start making them. Nice. So I've kind of we spent the whole whole summer writing um, loads of Android games and stuff like that. Kind of right from the get go. You've now written more games than I had when I joined the games industry. Wow! Yeah. No one that because you've just gone through the cycle so many times and you know kind of that's the the, the sort of way in. So I, you know, if uh, if any of the listeners out there yeah. want to want to do it, just get on those those tools are out there. There is somebody out there on the internet that has posted how to solve your problem and kind of thing. Um, it, it, it's there's never been a better time to, to make or get into games. Good. Tools are amazing. So yes. Anyway, good so that's how I got into professional games. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Good. Uh, good advice. Um, you may agree. We may disagree. But you're, you're certainly very well known for Rick Dangerous. Okay, that is huge. Uh, I, I I love the game. I played it again recently. I, I think it's brilliant. Um, I used to play it a lot as a kid growing up. Um, it did uh, did another George Lucas film, Indiana Jones, help inspire you? And how? What was your Absolutely. first? Yeah. How did how did you first get the idea of Rick Dangerous? And what exactly right. happened? Okay. So uh, yeah, we've been at Gremlin for a number of months, yeah. and Gremlin had to shut the Derby Studio and said, right, you're going to go up to Sheffield, hmm. or do you want to take redundancy? And we went, we'll take redundancy and we'll do something here. Yeah. And at that time, Jeremy Smith, who was a sales manager at Gremlin, came down and went, guys, I could keep the office open here if you want to work for me. And we all went, mm. yeah, all right then. <laughs> um, so then we had to come up with a series of games. So whilst I was working at Gremlin as a graphic artist on Masters of the Universe, Skate Crazy, and all of those kind of things, mm. in the background, I'd said to Andy Green, I'm an Atari ST. 
what's the technical jiggery pokery stuff that I need so that then I can actually start programming this thing. Uh, because I've, I've, once I get in, I can do the logic, mm. but it's deciphering those gnarly hardware technical manuals is beyond my kind of thing. Mm. Andy just went here. These about eight lines of code, you know, kind of put the, put the machine entirely under control and it's a big bag of memory. So in the background, I'd been teaching myself how to code 68,000, started work on Switchblade, which yeah. was going to you know, take me another 18 months, two years to, to make. So me and Terry, Terry Lloyd, are sat there going, right, okay, what are we going to do um, for games ideas? And uh, we were sort of sat there in the uh, Tuesday afternoon, I think it was, um, in this little office in Saxon House, and we're, we're sort of going around. I said, right, let's write down what's been done at the moment. And I can remember distinctly Black Tiger had just come out from Capcom. So that was Swords and Sorcery yeah. off the list. And we kind of went through a space shooter, this and you know, so and so. And um, I don't know which one of us said it, but we just went, you know what's never been done? It's a really good Indiana Jones game. Yeah, yeah. Had the arcade games, you'd have Pitfall, but never had you had the sense of that sort of first five minutes of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. You're in a tube, it's full of traps, it's spring-loaded and it's coming at you. So we're like, that'd be cool. Um, I remember... At the time, also, I'd seen Joe Blade on the Spectrum with its little squashy characters. I was like, I like those. Yeah. Uh, and so kind of drew this little sort of sketch of a squashy little sort of Indiana Jones <laughs> character like that. And kind of kicked around with, uh, with Terry. He's like, what, could, what would we do for the gameplay? So, yeah, it was rolling boulders, being attacked by bats, mm. spikes coming at you, blow darts coming at you. And as we were kind of drawing out these little cartoons of things that could happen, I was like, hang on a minute. I reckon... There's a really, really simple piece of code that could provide all of these things the entire game. I'm, I'm sure what we could do is have a sprite yeah. that starts off either deadly or kind of not uh, not harmful in any way. And then when you hit a trigger box mm. with your little character, it could turn deadly or go away. So that would give you spikes that appear and disappear. Yeah. And what we could do is they all start off static or invisible. And then we could play an animation. So, therefore, if I walk into a space, all of a sudden a blow dart appears and fires across the screen. Yeah. And very, very quickly, I kind of formulated this really, really simple system um, that would allow us to do pretty much everything that Terry came up with. So, it's like, okay, then I've got bats, I've got gates, I've got this thing or that thing. And we're just going, no, no, this works. So, talk to Jeremy and the guys and, like, what do you think? So, he took our little sort of cartoon storyboards. I've got some scans of those on my Rip Dangerous page on the uh, on my, my website. Yeah. Um, and uh, took them took them around, and, uh, yeah, we, we got, um, I think it was Microprose or was it Microprose or Firebird. Um, one of the two, yeah, Fire, I think it was Firebird, wasn't it, uh, was the original publishers, and they came back and said, yeah, please make this for wow, us. Wow, yeah. So we set about making it, and we kind of made it in about four to five months. Um with myself doing all of the sprite graphics, yeah. uh, Terry doing all of the background graphics. I was coding the 68,000 version, so the Amiga and the ST versions. Yeah. And Dave Pridmore doing the Z80 versions. Um, Stu Gregg, who had, um, my old, old school friend, who'd kind of come into Gremlin by US Gold, working on the Commodore 64, I think, or was it Chris Shigley? I, I think it might have been Stu at that point. And then... Um, John Kirkland, uh, my schoolmate, 
working on the PC version. So there we were, this little team, and we had uh, Bob Churchill and Rob Toon helping out with the design uh, of that. And one of the things I actually did was um, I also wrote the, the a lot of the sprite cutting tools that we had. So what I was able to do was to draw all of the artwork uh, on the Atari and then down versions uh, for Spectrum and blocked out versions for the uh, Amstrad. Yeah. And actually what I did was um, wrote, a, wrote a system which would actually take the Atari screens and create the data for the Spectrum and the Amstrad. And the uh. So I never had to touch those machine so I could basically draw all the sprites and then go right guys here's all the art yeah. uh, and then Terry would hand me the the character the graphics pass those through so we had a really really efficient tools pipeline as you'd call it today yeah, yeah. times a bit of code that split it out and shot it there down to everybody's systems yeah. which meant that we could work really really fast um, and then the other side of it was the fact that when we came to designing it what we did was we designed the, um, the whole game so it would kind of work within the limitations of all the system. So, for example, all the sprites were 24 pixels wide by 24 mm. Commodore 54 pixel size. So we weren't having to try and do anything different. We just drew to that size. Um, 256 characters, which worked with the Commodore and was memory efficient for everybody else. Um, it was a flick screener uh, for things like the Spectrum. Um, and also it was 32 characters wide. So it will work on the spectrum, the maps would work on the spectrum as well as they would on any other system. So that was kind of the thing where, where it was like, you know, we didn't want, you know, kind of maps having to be redone on different systems just because the screen was eight, eight, eight characters wider or slightly taller or anything like that kind of thing. So that meant that if it worked on one system, it worked on them and all. all. Very clever. Uh, that was kind of how, how, how we did it. So we whizzed through that and um, shot that out. Um, and the weird thing about Rick was, although we finished it really early on, of course, first game, um, it didn't get published until about 89 because oh. I, um, because the, the guys that had it hung on to it for a while. Mm. So weirdly, we moved on to other games um, by the time that Rick actually came out, which was kind of crazy because, you, you know, every other game I've ever worked on, the moment you press, you know, the f final build, it comes yeah. scorching out and goes onto a disc or gets uploaded in a second. Interesting. You, you're right cramming up to the end. But, yeah, that was kind of quite wild and crazy. Yeah. Um, did, yeah. Did you feel like, once you completed it, did you feel that it would it would become the game it became or do you almost forget no. about it? Oh, or? absolutely no. I mean, that, you know, kind of thing. It was one of those kind of ones that we were we were happy to have yeah. completed. We'd have fun uh, for making it. Uh, we'd had some really strong discussions about how difficult it was, uh, was to be. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was the very first time I'd ever, ever kind of had a situation where you realize that uh, in the office, when you're playing this broken game day in, day out, you can unconsciously work around all of the things that, uh, that kind of like um, cause problems, mm. you know, bugs and things like that. And you get become adept with the game in ways that, no other human being can do. Yeah. Um, and I can remember distinctly one afternoon. Um, it's kind of a, it's a location that was halfway down the uh, Egyptian level. Mm. So Bob and Rob have got this particular piece where you drop down and you're having to do a do a jump. And it was like, oh, it's easy. All you have to do is wait for the timing to be right. <laughs> and then basically a blow dart is coming underneath them. And they're like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven eight jumps over these blow darts wow. and then kind of time it and all this kind of thing. I was like, we can't do that because <laughs> if 
you can you you're having to do it and explain it to me mm. and i literally can't do it what in hope has got anybody got to <laughs> got to play it play it out there so we actually made the game easier oh really now, yeah yes now the thing is in hindsight i have learned <laughs> many years later how how difficult rick was we it's never hard. intended it to be this <laughs> yeah Thing was, we came, we, we, you know, kind of the guys worked on uh, Monty Mole, they'd worked on Jack and Nipper, and we'd all sort of grown up with the, you know, one hit you're dead kind of games, you know, sort of thing. There's one little tiny thing about about games like Manic Miner and all that lot that Rick Dangerous completely, in its com- total naivety, ignored. In all those other games, there is a repeatable pattern. Yeah. Walk into a room. You can watch everything moving up and down, yeah. and it's a regular, regular pattern. You know where you, uh, which which um, uh, platforms are going to crumble away when you step on them, and you learn the timing and gradually work your way through it. Yeah, we completely disregarded that in our in <laughs> yeah. our naivety. We'd gone well, you know, you're going to have blow darts coming at you and all this kind of stuff. So instead of creating a you know kind of Monty Mole uh, manic miner jet set willy kind of yeah. We created this sort of like memory puzzle, which was this kind of mm. spring-loaded, inconsistent death trap <laughs> that you kind of had to sort of leap and bounce your way through. Yeah. I suppose, you know, sort of like you look to something like Dragon's Lair in the arcades. Mm. That was probably more like it, where it was just, oh, I have to react and do something or other. And there are places in that game where we've gone, yeah, there's something that looks innocent. You walk over and suddenly fireballs come out. Yeah. You know, um, so... We'd not thought about that. It was just one of those kind of things that we'll take the controls that we know from this, we'll do this, we'll change this one element. And, and that's where we ended up creating this game. Yeah. Uh, that was, you know, kind of unique and unlike any other. And, you know, we were really happy that you know, it did reflect that opening to, to, to Raiders, you know, mm. sort of thing. But we didn't, didn't realize how it would go. And, you know, sort of like now it still boggles my mind. Yeah. Letters to this day mm. from who go, I played this, I loved it. And, and it's such a, um, it's such an unexpected and yeah. tremendous privilege because you're, you're entertaining somebody that you'll never meet. Yeah. And actually having that kind of thing, particularly with this, is um, it's kind of, um, it's, it's, you've kind of created something that represents a time in someone's life. Yeah. And sat there on the sofa or in the bedroom with their mates laughing at one another, passing the joystick, yeah. having another go. And that's, you know, priceless, you know, to actually help form those memories. And then it, it's quite wonderful when somebody comes uh, and gets in touch and goes, I hated that game, but thank you. Yeah. That's just amazing, you know, yeah. sort of thing. Because I would never have thought that anybody would have remembered it 12 months later, never mind mm. 30 years or something like that. Uh, so that's that's quite wonderful. But it has been one of those kind of ones that, you know, in those early years where you'd kind of get a taxi. It's like, what do you do? Um, I make games. Oh, any of it? heard of? Sonic the Hedgehog then? <laughs> no. Uh, no, you wouldn't have heard of any of it. Yeah. I've got a few now that people will have heard of, you know, sort of thing. But then there are these nice surprises of, of, of games like Rick that come back and something. Mm. That, loved it. So, yeah, that's kind of uh, where we got to with, uh, with Rick Dangerous and its difficulty. Yeah. I mean, I'd agree. I think it's those games where it can be—it can be frustrating. I've almost chucked my joystick away in anger, but you—you you keep want to do the level. You want to keep getting past the next boulder and the next screen. It's got that yep. kind of weird mag- magnet to the game. I think it, it draws you in. So it does. Yeah, 
Yes. Yeah. Just I, I, if I just get it right this yeah. time, I know that I'm going to, you know, and it is yeah. that that sort of thing which we happened upon purely by chance and say is built on the back of um, the rule set and the games mm. that came before it. But we broke one particular rule and didn't realize it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it worked. <laughs> No, and you kind of mentioned it earlier, it's, it's almost like a puzzle game in a weird way, isn't it? You have to learn yes. where to jump and it, it's frustrating, but also, yeah, just you want to keep going. It's, it's a great game, I have to say. Fair play yeah, to it. And, and, the, and the signature, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, that was me and Terry screaming our heads off oh, into it? a little condenser, condenser mic tape deck, making ridiculous noises, and then we picked the funniest, oh, and that's... mine just happened to be the funniest. That's a great uh, so that's, that's where that one came from. <laughs> that's a great... I mean, Rick Dangerous 2 came out, what, just a year later? Is that right? I mean, how yes, soon it... did you start working on the sequel after the first one was made? And were you pressured? Actually, or... we, I, I'm trying to think now. Um, it was it was a little time later. I'm just trying, trying oh, to think okay. whether I did... Did I do Python after that one? I think, I think we did. I think... Uh, cool if I remember rightly, because it was one of those kind of ones that we moved on to make yeah. more. It goes and checks his website uh, for, uh, for games listing. That's simonfips.com, uh, <laughs> by the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, that, that, was, that all started about 2003. I was like, I'd like to make a website. Yeah. Well, why don't I just put together something that uh, I've done? Yeah, so let's think. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Rick Dangerous came sort of three games later. Oh, so okay. in my spare time, I'd made Switchblade. Yeah. Uh, we started yeah. off as a uh, project that was basically teach myself programming in my spare time, mm. which I started before Core. And then I ended up working on for 18 months just in my spare time. And the weird thing was, by the time Switchblade was kind of finaling, mm. um, one of the things was that I was working with really awful, old-fashioned spaghetti code. Yeah. Yeah code that I was working with at work had gone through, you know, three or four iterations. So it was brilliant. And I was kind of faced with that situation of, do I go back and fix this? No, just keep moving ahead. Although it's awful. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So after um, Dangerous, we met, uh, did a couple of, couple of other games. Um, the St. and Greaves' football trivia quiz game, mm. which was, guys, you've got 10 weeks. We've got this board game. We need to convert it and uh, get it out. So we, we did that and then the Monty Python's uh, Flying Circus computer game, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was uh, briefed in by Virgin. We wanted to do some co- well, we actually had the choice of doing Judge Dredd or Monty Python. We're all going, Let's do Judge Dredd. <laughs> yeah. like, yes, guys, you've got Monty Python. Uh. <laughs> so, um, that was that was tough. Um, one of the things was that the first thing that the guys at Virgin said was, We don't want it to be dangerous reskin. Oh. So we went off for a very long time on a path that was based around the control of the character mm. more than it was about kind of the puzzles and traps. And after kind of many, many weeks, they kind of came back and went, get a bit more of those kind of traps and yeah. types of stuff in. They were like, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that went in. Uh, that, was, that, was a, that was a really, really tough uh, game to, 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 uh, to finish. Oh, wow. Because mm. it was one of those kind of things that Python – means so many things to everybody. Yeah. And um, we were trying to make something uh, that would satisfy that on a spectrum. Mm. That's, <laughs> tough, that's <laughs> a tough job. <laughs> but I did need, uh, it did give me the opportunity to, to kind of um, dive back into all that Terry Gilliam stuff that I'd seen back yeah. in 1974 when I was a kid going, I love that animation style. Mm. And so what I actually did was 
the art that I did for uh, for Python was to you know mimic his style in sprites and and take all the cutout styles that he did, replicate those uh, in uh, in the computer, and also take live action characters and pass them through my own Gilliam style filter, so you could have characters in there that looked like he'd drawn them, but that only ever appeared as live action. And yeah. That was you know kind of I'm quite pleased with how that turned out, even though as, as a sort of a creative thing that you've done. It's not a great game by any means, but it was really fascinating to work on from that. Mm, How do you true. take that Gilliam style and make it happen? Uh, and then Rig Dangerous 2 came along because mm. of the success of the first one, it was like, can you do as a sequel? Um, so yeah, what we did with Dangerous 2, and I say this is quite some time after because uh, we've done the uh, games in between whiles and uh, say Rick was held back uh, and, uh, and, and shipped and published uh, long after we we actually finished. Yeah. Um, was how do we how do we go further? So smooth scrolling was first the thing. Um, the idea was to make it a Flash Gordon spoof. We'd already done the Indiana Jones adventure thing. Yeah, clever idea. Very movie genre. Um, would, you know, think of it widescreen. So if you look at the the background of the uh, title screen, everything's like CinemaScope, whereas the original was kind of four three black and white kind of kind of stuff. Um, and play around with it. Different, you know, kind of uh, a, a training level followed by a level, you know, into, um, and then a much more sophisticated trap system. Yeah. Um, the way that we approached that one was um, Dave Pridmore took point on that one he said right what do you want to do so we had this huge wish list of all the things that we kind of wanted to do with it was the ability to turn around and go okay then you know reverse the, uh, set something on a path then be able to reverse it or set something going it will go and then stop and then press it again and it was kind of all of those sort of things that you kind of hit before on with the simplicity of rick yeah uh, taking and given give those sort of various different options for uh, for gameplay, um, and one of the things that um, uh, Dave did was he wrote uh, um, the trap system, and it was so complex because it all had to be coded into bits and things it had to kind of get into a spectrum of memory, and uh, all of these were conditions were so really gnarly that the approach that we took was when it came to actually implementing the trap system, Dave printed out the Z80, mm. literally sat there for a day, each one of us in turn, translating is Z80 into our particular machine code because it was so complicated. It's like, yeah, take this, this, take the top bit of that, then test that, then do so and so, store it into here. So it was, you know, it was just, they created this complex Swiss watch of a mechanism. Yeah. Nobody else understood it. And it was like, how do we get it to work? And it worked. Um, so yeah, that was kind of, uh, was, was Rick too, was to, to go and do the, the extra bit pieces. We had um, we introduced the idea of sliding the um, bombs. That yeah. was actually I think it was, my name was Tim, our kind of external producer, said, "Pretty cool if you could do that." And we we're like, yeah. "You know what? That is cool." So came up with that little extra move, and also um, the idea of could we do something that was a little more action um, oriented in between, so put little pace bike sequences in there uh, as that. So that was kind of you know sort of taking it to the uh, um, to 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 another place because we there's so much you can do raking yeah. off space and, and and have a poke at the sort of Saturday morning project uh, Flash Gordon stuff so that was that one yeah good I mean it was well received it did it did very well didn't it as well Rick Dangerous too just like the first game um, yeah. was there was there pressure or was was there any 
inkling in your brain to say, let's do number three, let's get let's get the trio, let's do another Rick Dangerous? We'd always, um, we'd always kind of hinted that, you know, kind of at the end, yeah. it goes into some sort of teleporter and goes somewhere else. Yeah. And in the back of my mind, it was like, do we do sort of like, you know, kind of going back into the sort of 40s and 50s genre, do you do private detective or something like that kind of thing? Um, but, you know, the, the sort of request to make it never came in because at that point we were developing or other publishers. Yeah. So we were going, you know, doing whatever the, uh, the work kind of, um, uh, needed to, you know, sort sure. of thing. So, uh, so it, ne- it kind of never came up. If somebody had said we want to make a, a three, we would have done it, but, um, we never, you know, Never, um, yeah. never consciously said, "Oh, we're going to make one of these and then try uh, try and pitch it out." And plus, also as well, one of the things was is like for for me, it was kind of like the the idea of we've done I've done sort of cartoony platform mm. games. Yeah, what yeah. can we do to do more serious looking sprites? You know, yeah. bigger human proportions, and you know, explore other areas rather than just getting stuck in the rot of making just the, just being the cartoon platform guy kind of thing uh, and stuff. So that's kind of where yeah. we went, you know, sort of things to, to, you know, kind of my ambitions were let's do something, uh, something else, something bigger. Um, I remember also actually with uh, Switchblade that I'd made, um, I'd always envisaged having these kind of like manga style characters, which I'd drawn for the uh, yeah. um, uh, intros and stuff like that. But of course, you know, you try and do one of those in, in 32 pixels high, it's like a <laughs> stick map. So yeah. I'd made the characters kind of like this kind of what, now know it's like chibi sort of characters mm. um, because they look better as a sprite but I'd always in the back of my mind I want to make them look bigger and better and so that's kind of where I went doing things like Wolf Child which were taking on that kind of Capcom style and, and, and making bigger more realistic production comic book characters and things and just wanting to co- kind of go yeah, move on. away from just doing the cartoon platformers yeah no I, I get that completely um Look, Simon, last question on Rick Dangerous. There's, there's so many um, okay. reboots of classic yes. platformers. They're coming back, Bubsy's back, and you know, Crash Bandicoot's been re- revitalised. Would you ever be tempted to, to sit down and work on Rick Dangerous 3? Just, you know, it's been a good number of years now. Uh, we, well, I, I, have, I have experimented a few years back. I did exper- uh, experiment in Unity with their... Uh, I actually taught myself C-sharp because I haven't yeah. done any high-level programming since uh, Poly. I do, all my coding was um, machine code until yeah. uh, I, I kind of left the programming behind. So I actually learned some C-sharp, and I have, I had, uh, I must confess, I did spend a bit of time playing around with platformers uh, on Android and mm. making stuff, which is quite an interesting, fun exercise. But it's kind of just having the time, because these things take a lot of work yeah. uh, and stuff, and weighing that against all the other bits and pieces. But it was, it was tremendous fun to kind of go back in there um, the weird thing is, is trying to is uh, the um, as Unity was about five years ago uh, was much as the sort of uh, it's got a two D physics engine in there. Mm. It gives you for free with like mountains of amazing sort of built in stuff like gravity and kind of uh, effortless collisions and triggers and stuff like that. Yeah, doing some very very simple old school platforming tricks also becomes really really hard. Because you can't simply, you know, or at least back then anyway, you couldn't kind of slide a box along the top of another box because at a very tiny um, floating point level, you would end up kind of getting collisions that yeah. were kind of also. I spent an awful lot of time 
um, almost fighting the uh, the 2D physics system that they got in there, which theoretically you could write platform games with, but you still didn't get the control that we did yeah. when we were writing fake stuff. So I think if I ever went back to it again, I'd write my own kind of um, 2D engine uh, and then just use their sprite displays and stuff. But that was it was an interesting little exercise for a while, um, playing around with touch inputs and stuff like that. And then kind of um, my son, he's uh, say doing his uh, uh, computer. Uh, science stuff, yeah. and at that time he's been sort of programming Android, so I've been going, no, you do it this way, move it in the X, clamp the X, move it in the Y, and stuff like that kind of thing, because um, I've, of, of late, I've had so many art projects on yeah. the prop project, it's not, it's not time to go back to it. No, fair enough, I appreciate it. Um, I'd love to quickly talk about a few, a few of your other sort of games as well, like, for example, yeah, sure. like, like Shadow Man, I mean, that was a, a Dreamcast, I believe, game that you worked on. And it was a, a big success, and it looked good. And you know, I, I I haven't actually played it, but I've heard good things about it. Um, what was it like working on that particular title? Because it seems quite dark, very different oh, to your yeah. sort of previous games. And do, yeah, do you, do you have good memories of that? Yeah, it's one of those kind of things that I I do enjoy. If you're taking on something, mm. throwing yourself 100 percent into it, and trying to get it get to the to the real heart of it. Yeah. Um, what yeah. happened with uh, Shadow Man was I. Um, Myself and my buddy Guy Miller, who was the creative director at Core, ended up leaving Core and going up to work at uh, Iguana Entertainment, which then became Acclaimed Studios at the T-Cycle. Builds for us on the T's. First things that we turned up there and worked on were uh, a couple of their sort of sports titles, because uh, I actually turned up and they were kind of like, by this time I um, dropped the coding because I couldn't code design and, and do art mm. all at the same time because the games would become too big. So I sort of turned up there and uh, they were like, are you a designer or an artist? I was like, well, <laughs> I can do art, I can do design, but you guys really need a designer, mm. so I'll design for you. And at that point, I'd become what's called a designer program uh, planner. Mm. was where you designed the game and then you project managed it. Uh, so I arrived and worked with them on College Slam, which was their sort of like umpteenth version of the NBA Jam engine. Yeah. Used basketball and stuff like that. Um, guy worked on uh, Frank Thomas Big Hurt Baseball and helped chip that one. Um, but the guys were there really, really talented, wanted to work on something bigger to do something original. Mm. So what we did was because Guy and I had both worked at Core where you were just pitching original projects all the time, said, right, okay, let's get around this. Let's come up with some ideas. Um, so we formulated some original concepts and pitched them to uh, Darren and Jason uh, Falkas, who, um, who ran the studio, pitched those to the guys in New York. And the guys in New York said, we love it. We'd love you to you know, take on uh, something that's more than just a conversion, uh, some this kind of thing. Um, can you do anything with these? Yeah. Now, they've just uh, done Turok Dinosaur Hunter based on the Valiant comics. So Darren and Jason came back with this big stack of Valiant comics. So you had, um, oh, cracky. Now, um, Bloodshot, which was kind of like a Terminator game. Mm-hmm. Trinity Angels, which was kind of a, a three superheroines in a kind of a Russ Mayer-type spoof kind of thing. Yeah. Um, oh, man. Exo Manor War or something like that kind of thing. And then there's this Shadow Man. Mm. Shadow Man had been... Um, a Valiant comic for a long while and then had just been rebooted by I, was it Garth Ennis and Ashley Wood. Garth Ennis writing it, Ashley Wood um, painting it with his, uh, with his kind of uh, 
almost Bill Sienkiewicz style yeah. uh, of stuff. It's really moody and really cool. And uh, Guy and I were like, what? This would be really, you know, this is the one that has most, most really interesting potential yeah. because uh, the premise was that Michael Loire had um, effectively sold his soul to the devil and, and had his, uh, his, his chest implanted with his voodoo mask, which allowed him to become the Lord of Deadside and to pass between our, uh, our world and the land of the dead and sort of hunt down monsters that had come through. And the, the, uh, the, so the land of the dead was a place called Deadside. It was very sort of vague in the comics, and the comics had only sort of been running for maybe three or four issues and everything. And we're like, you know what? This is really, really cool. Mm. Um, I'm sure we could do something with it. And we came up with this idea of, okay, you have this game which has the uh, um, Land of the Living where you play Mike Loire and then you then pass over into Deadside and then come back at yeah. night at Shadowman and see the world in a, through a different sort of light. And then what happens when things come through? And we kind of came up with the idea of, well, okay, what if the most evil and worst people that ever lived got together in Deadside started coming through? Yeah. So at that time, there was things like the team the X-Files had been on for a few years. The spin-off of that millennium uh, yeah, was kicking around. And it was sort of like all in there. So we sort of hooked into that. It was a five of seven and stuff like that. And we kind of came up with this crazy plot and built off of uh, mine and Guy's experience of kind of uh, wanting to do something like a Legend of Zelda nice. uh, game where you're accumulating weapons and items that are acted as keys to open up the world and everything. Yeah. Kind of came up with this sort of, uh, sort of concept, um, which folks actually, years later, when it came out in the N64 and started looking, were like, this is like Zelda's evil twin, yeah. which is a great compliment because that's kind of the, those were sort of the language and the, the ideas mm -hmm. and the structure that we kind of built on. Um, the other components of that were the fact that um, at that time, one had taken on um, a genius guy called Ed Skio, who had written this amazing 3D engine. He said, I know what to do with it. We're like, we'll have that. Can you make one of these? And so that became the, the um, bedrock of uh, the Shadowman and uh, Acclaim's uh, engine. Um, and then we had terrific artists like Andy Wright, Trev Story, Nick Patrick, Andy Catlin. We're all there, um, of, um, Mike Musket really got into it and uh, those guys really sort of embraced the whole kind of um, dead side zombies, monsters mm. and everything. Like in this really fun, let's go for it in a big way, make it dark, make it twisted, make it um, wild, throw in loads of backstory and everything like that kind of thing. And so this sort of wonderful sort of confluence of us all working together to try and make it weird and upsetting. And actually one of the things I do remember um, whilst we were sort of planning out all of the levels and stuff, was that idea of let's try and, and, and almost, you know, kind of we're doing this kind of in a, uh, it's almost like an intellectual exercise. It weren't, we weren't into sort of monsters and horror and all this kind of stuff. But it was like, what's the weirdest stuff we can, and most unsettling stuff that we can put in a video game? still kind of classy but weird yeah. in that kind of aspect of sort of seven and those kind of things where you go oh like this yeah. and so we actually had a lot of people going oh I don't like that oh that's really upsetting <laughs> going all I've done is put in the middle of all of this kind of things 
these uh, certain props where we put this sound effect in. And it, it works in such a way that it kind of unsettles you. But it was this really intellectual exercise for us mm. that was kind of like, let's try and play with people's expectations. Let's mess around with them and stuff like that. Sort of thing. Uh, tremendous, tremendous fun. Um, um, we spent a fair few uh, few years on it. And I'm really, you know, kind of the guys have been in the North East. Yeah. So well, so great to work with. Um, and the thing with... Um, with Chinaman was that it started on the PC and we originally had intended to do it for um, the Sega Saturn yeah. and the PlayStation 1, I believe, at the time. Yeah. Then what happened was, was that the PlayStation 1 was taken off the schedule and the N64 was placed on. Then the Saturn version was dropped, mm. so we were working on it for PC and N64. And then at the last minute... PlayStation 1 version, and then the Dreamcast version were already added on. Nice. So we had this kind of situation where we were dropping through formats all the way through and kind of accumulating uh, um, other ones. And it, the, one of the ones that sort of like, and so we ended up kind of making various different versions, at least with how it went out on the N64 on the PC, because it always intended it on the PC anyway. Yeah. Uh, Cast version went out well, and the one that kind of broke all our collective hearts was the PS1 version. Really, kind of it had come back, it come into to, and it had to get out for the quarter. And I remember Les Les Long, who was one of our coders at the time, was practically living at the office trying to get the game as optimized as possible. And it yeah. was really kind of like almost begging, "Can I have a few more weeks to get it out to to improve it, to improve the frame rate yeah. and everything like that kind of thing." We don't want to get it out like that, but unfortunately, the quarter had to be met. And the game had to go out because we're in that sort of situation. It's pre-downloads and patches, so because it had to go on a physical disc, and we, that was the one thing that, out of all of that experience, that kind of wrenches out as, uh, even now when you sort of think about it. It's like you know, we yeah. managed to get there with the other versions, but that one, and it, and it, you know, it broke um, Les's heart to have to uh, let it go. Yeah. not being as well as it could be, you know, sort of thing. But it as sounds, an experience, yeah. a creative experience, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. It's a game I'm going to check out. It looks awesome, actually. I've never actually played, like I said, but it does interest me a lot. You'll see, you'll see a, lot of the, a lot of the Zelda influence, oh. the whole idea of yeah. trying to create weapons and items that had a dual purpose so they could be used offensively yeah. and then... Strategically, yeah. Like that kind of thing. And then you've got the soundtrack that Tim Hayward put together for us, which is... Uh, terrific. I mean, he bless him. He he threw himself into uh, into that and the the sort of creating this kind of like uh, sounds and stuff like that and the mood of the whole piece. Um, that was uh, that was great fun. Nice. Um, and also, actually, the the other one as well. We uh, this was probably this was the first time I'd actually done any voice acting and uh, we'd done a full on voice script. Uh, we ended up um, uh, doing a proper recording session. Um, and weirdly enough, I ended up getting the role of a couple of the characters. Good. Obviously, a uh, guy wrote all of the script, and we'd obviously do sort of like readings of the of the voice script to see if it works, and I ended up doing my, my uh, best boy Austin's. <laughs> it was like, yeah, you're doing Jack the Ripper, so I'm sat there oh, in a recording cool. studio opposite professional actors who were doing their voices for, for the game as well. Yeah. Which was quite, uh, quite remarkable, and... Uh, also, at one point for the um, as well, getting to the opportunity was um, the uh, acclaim also worked close, uh, had uh, Probe under its banner down in Croydon. Wow. They had a motion capture studio. So I remember going down there for a couple of days and 
ended up being in the suit with all the reflective balls doing motion capture performances for uh, a lot of the characters, a lot of the serial wow. characters, which then Andy Wright then took that, that stuff and, uh, and, and turned in. So it is that kind of thing that, again, going back to what I was saying about kind of the joy of work kind of career is those opportunities that if you kind of show a bit of willing, yeah. you, you have a drive towards, you end up doing and, you know, there's, unless somebody turns around and says, no, you're absolutely not going to do this. It's like, well, you know, you get the opportunity to, to act, to, to be in the suit, to do, yeah. do these things and to meet incredible people. So, no, it was, that, that was, a, it was a joy to work on. And we had, a, you know, it was one of the best of times. In fact, actually, it was great um, this summer. Finally, after many years of saying we did it, uh, we actually uh, headed up to Newcastle and reunited a whole bunch of the, the original team. And it was, uh, uh, and, and we all just got together for lots of beers yeah. in Newcastle. Fantastic time. And it was like, you know, the, the past 20 odd years had never, never, um, uh, never passed. You know, so that Good was correct. Stuff. And I love, I love your name checking Croydon because that's actually where Arcade Attack, where we're based actually. So. Ah, got you. Yes, yeah. <laughs> nice little fact there. Yeah, no, brilliant. Look, that's great, Simon. It's, it's, it looks brilliant, and I'm a massive Zelda fan, so it sounds right up my alley, actually. Um, I want to quickly ask about Harry Potter. I mean, there's, there's, not, mm, sure. there's not many bigger IPs in the world than Harry Potter, and you worked on, I think, three Harry Potter yeah, three, games? Four, yeah, I mean, that's, four and a half, actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I mean, how did these opportunities arise, and did you enjoy, did you like Harry oh, Potter? Was it, what happened? Yeah, so uh, so let's think. So my 34th birthday, I am still working up at, uh, in Stockton-on-Tees, and I was kind of, um, I, I live in the Midlands, but I was working away, and Guy and I were sharing a flat up in Stockton. Yeah. Uh, 31st birthday comes around, and Guy bought me a couple of copies of um, the first two Harry Potter books, yeah. Philosopher's Stone and Chamber of Secrets, mm-hmm. and said, my kids have been reading these, I've been reading these, I think they're brilliant. Yeah. You might give it a go. And I remember reading them and thinking, wow, there's something about these in that English kids adventure kind of book. You can't beat them. They're brilliant. They're amazing. Never thought anything of it. Um, We were working at Claim Teesside, as it was then, on the second Shadowman. And we'd uh, designed the whole thing, written the script, Mm. put out all the storyboards and everything. Um, But a claim was hit in a situation where they were starting to shut places down. Right. I'd had to have uh, a horrible time where there'd been redundancies at the studio. Um, Darren and Jason, who were the original founders of Guana, who uh, they had left as well, kind of thing. And it was all starting to feel a bit sort of, uh, yeah. sadly, we're going to have to move on. Um, so both Guy and I thought, well, we, we'd stuck together and stuff like that, but we'll go and pursue whatever opportunity. So uh, Guy went his own path and ended up uh, chatting to the guys down at Electronic Arts. Mm. Um, I'd been offered a job at Infogram in uh, Manchester. Mm. And so I was like, well, it's closer to home. At least I won't be living away. And then I discovered the practicalities of getting from Nottingham to Manchester are a lot harder than you'd think because yeah. as the crow flies, we're very close, but there's a massive peak district at the M6 in the way. So that made it challenging. But I, I left um, Teesside around about the same time as the guy had done. Uh, and went to work with a lovely chap named Tim Heaton at uh, um, Manchester's Instagram office, which they were building up. And whilst I was there, um, they got me to work on a Superman game that was going to be coming out for the new Xbox. Yeah. And the idea was I got to design it and run the team and everything like that kind of thing. Um, over the 
four or five months I was there, I put together this proposal, got to meet all of the guys from DC Comics, the, the editors, they actually came up with and met them. Fantastic guys, brilliant. Then, after, uh, after doing this, discovered that Infogram were already doing a Superman game at the Sheffield office. Right. The animated series. This was to do with Superman from the comic books. And I was like, oh, <laughs> are you going to do two Superman games? Because there's going to be an S on the box and, you know, set up a team here and spend millions mm. of dollars making a game. And then you go, why are we making two? This isn't a really good idea. So I went down and spoke to their kind of marketing publishing department and said the same thing to those guys. And they were like, um, we're glad you asked us this because we don't know why either. And I was like, look, you know, you might as well do an Xbox conversion of the animated series um, mm. Superman already got in uh, because you know if it goes on the shelves in brazil they're going to see an s on the box they're not going to be concerned with whether it's a comic book game or an animated series and though i've got a slightly different approach it's still going to be a superman game yeah. so like okay fair enough came back on the train i'm so sorry about this you could work on a warner brothers game and we've got bits and pieces up so i said tim actually just had an uh, um uh, an interview at electronic arts I'd been down there putting together the team uh, for Harry Potter, which was uh, meeting the guys that were all the original Bullfrog team that worked on Dungeon Keeper and all of those games. Brilliant games, yeah. Um, and he got in touch and said, Simon, we're making a Harry Potter game. Um, I need a designer, you know, sort of thing. Do you want to come along? And I was like, okay, then let's come down. So I met all the guys down there, um, Colin Robinson, who was the head of the Jeff Hammond, all those guys, and... We clicked and they offered me a job. So I was like, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to uh, <laughs> leave you, you know, after such a short period of time. And Tim was like, no, that uh, totally understand. And this, that, and the other, best of luck. And yeah. actually, about 18 months ago, I met those guys for me. Hey, they're really, really nice, aren't they? I was like, <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> Two years later, I'm walking up the stairs in the big building that was uh, in the uh, in Inception, uh, which was the, the Chertsey offices. Nice. And Tim came walking down the stairs. I got uh, uh, working for publishing, so we all ended up there in the end anyway. Um, so, yeah, I got the – that's how I, I say went down to standard interview and got the job and um, landed in the middle of the Bullfrog team, as was, and those guys have been several months starting to ramp everything, uh, ramp everything up and come up with the idea of the game. Um, so I joined in with Guy uh, Chapman and Andy Kerridge, who was a – and we started to pull together how you would make a Harry Potter game from there. Um, that was kind of drawing on all the experience we'd had with Shadowman, yeah. you know, first action adventures uh, and stuff. And then the other one as well, uh, whilst I was at Core, I worked on Asterix and the Power of the Gods. Mm. One of the things, that was my first, well, it was kind of my second uh, after Python really proper licensed game. And with Asterix, what I had done is I've been pulled in to do the design portion of the, of the game. What I did was took all of the Asterix books and yeah. to try and come up with a central thread for it, um, found every instance in some 30 Asterix books, all the things that were called out as an ingredient for Magic Potion, and referenced them and wrote notes. So when we pitched to Sega and ultimately Les Editions Albert René, I could say, right, in this country, you get this potion ingredient. That country, you get that potion ingredient. Here's the reference. This is the panel on the page. Mm. So this is authentically Asterix. Mm. And it gives you that kind of um, big map screen of Gaul and going around Europe. And then the excuse to visit all of these things underneath the banner. So that always set the experience for 
going into Harry Potter. So when it came to doing a Harry Potter game, it was like, okay, then what do we want to do? We want to tell the story of the Philosopher's Stone. So we have to have a, an adventure which is fundamentally linear that takes you through the beats of the, the story. So I went through the book um, with Guy, broke down this kind of uh, massive kind of reference notes of on this page you do this, on that page you do this, and what the key plot elements of, of Harry going through the Philosopher's Stone storyline. Yeah. The thing we said was what we wanted to do was make a, an explorable Hogwarts because we were working on the next generation as was then, which would be the PS2, yeah. X, yeah, original uh, kind of era. Um, so that would be expected, would be to make this kind of thing. So what we came up with was, the, and, and also the idea of... Um, with Hogwarts, there is very much a letter during the day, then you sneak out at night and get up to hijinks. Yeah, and true. what we did was we were like, okay, then what we'll do is we'll structure it around um, a number of days and nights. Uh, in the days you go through and you learn your spells, which are weapons as keys, hmm. drawing on the Zelda, Shadowman kind of stuff. And your tutorial for those things are the lessons that you learn them in. You can take them into the explorable world and get further and find and pieces of exploration stuff and then what we'll do is we'll send you out on missions at night things to sneak out and then we will push in uh, you will like harry ron and hermione come across the events which set the major plot line of philosopher's stone in uh in, in, in into play so finding the trapdoor and fluffy and all of that remember it all those many years ago um and so that's kind of how we, we sort of set it up um We've got, you know, a phenomenal team of, of, of coders from Bullfrog, uh, artists, uh, um, Isley and uh, Rachel Huntington who are doing the concept tour, a uh, team of, of, um, of world artists. And we kind of kicked off with that one uh, with an idea of doing it. Now, also, at the time that we started, um, EA were already in production with the PlayStation 1 version of Blossom Stone. T version of Philosopher's Stone, Game Boy, or Game Boy Color version of Philosopher's Stone as well. Yeah. Um, and what happened was, is that because we were an in-house design resource, we were also asked to help out those guys with the various uh, different out external projects. Um, one of the things that we had got given as an amazing thing was uh, J.K. Rowling had written 120 pages of extra fiction. Wow. On guidebook to Hogwarts wow. and Dragon Alley and spells and things that we could do because when she first sort of talked about doing uh, video games she was like oh you could do this and you could do this yeah. so we had this kind of like wonderful bible wow. telling you what all of the uh, uh, shops in Diagon Alley would have and what their prices were mm. and what potion ingredients were and what you would find in various locations and a breakdown of Hogwarts she'd seen it so we had that as well. So one of the things that we realized as we were looking at these games that being developed externally was we had a very specific um, mind of how Hogwarts fit together. Yeah. Of the world were. And then you look at the intricacy of the book and you have that as well. And you're suddenly looking at a PlayStation 1 game that's had a level-by-level level PlayStation 1 game that's been developed by Argonaut. You go, hang on a moment. There are certain things that are happening in this game it so all of a sudden 
Guy and I were in this position where we became we, we fiction police. We had to kind of go along and go, we like the gameplay idea. Yeah. But if you show this to J.K. Rowling, she's going to go, no, you can't teleport because that doesn't come into the books until later. Or yeah. you can't have these things. I think they were sort of like baby trolls running around under Hogwarts. It's like, no, there's only one troll and it's in this kind of thing. Yeah. We had to do some sort of work with the external teams to make them sort of pull those things into line. Mm. whilst we were working uh, with our own internal team. And also Eurocom, because Eurocom were developing the um, GameCube version okay. of uh, Philosopher's Stone with us. So we're beetling along doing that. I, I ended up going sick, got absolutely no wonder it's cattle. Um, and we were kind of storming along. And the uh, intention was, was, let's think, I'm just trying to think, the Philosopher's Stone movie was coming out, mm. and we were building the next generation versions in-house and at Eurocom, um, and the other versions were coming along. And there was a realization that the Philosopher's Stone games that were built out of house, much simpler, were going to hit in time for the movie, but ours was going to come out the year after in right. time of Chamber of Secrets. Um, so we had to do a kind of about-face and redesign the whole of our game to work with the Chamber of Secrets uh, plotline out two years later, uh, sorry, a year and a half later, yeah. and get the original Philosopher's Stone out. So that's why Philosopher's Stone came out on PlayStation 1 and all those formats in time of movie. Yeah. We did Chamber of Secrets, and then later a Philosopher's Stone game for the next-gen systems, nice. out of house to come in like that. So it kind of worked worked in that, and it was it was fantastic, you know, kind of thing. Um interesting kind of working on on that sort of scale of project it mm. was kind of having gone through the stuff it was like uh you know kind of when you see um new directors going into the big hollywood machine where they're working with marvel for the first time yeah. or with Wars for the first time or whatever like that or i can remember thinking back to reading uh tim burton's book burton on burton talking about his experiences working with warner when he went on to the batman movie all of a sudden, the numbers and the amount of, uh, of scrutiny that these things get put under is just mind-blowing. Yeah. Uh, it is, a, I remember the, uh, my first day, which was the October the 20th, 2000, um, at EA, was going into the big building. Now, the building in Chertsey, if you've ever seen Inception, mm, yeah. sequence where you've got them on the magical never-ending staircase. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is the lobby of what was EA's building at Chertsey. <laughs> Great fact. <laughs> Many years years later, watching Inception going, I know that, but it doesn't bend around like that, <laughs> was messing with my head. But, yeah, yeah, we were in this huge facility, yeah. an amazing kind of uh, building designed by, I think it's the Frank Lloyd Wright, who previously designed airports. Yeah. And this was kind of like some huge kind of departure terminal from the future that just landed in the middle of Chertsey on a lake. Mm. Um, I kind of went in there and my first day I was in this gigantic meeting with all the heads of EA. So at the time being Gordon, Don Matrick uh, and uh, Bruce, uh, all kind of turning around going, this is what pot has got to be. It's got to make this many millions. It's got to do this. You've got to do that. And I was just like, <laughs> what's going on here you know sort of thing um but we you know we got through it and you know kind of thing um uh, learned so much about working on 
this many spinning plate sort of thing in a huge corporate sort of environment because of course we sort of got, you know started in small offices built groups of programmers and together yeah. obviously we worked within the corporate system for acclaim which was a big player at the time but it was, wasn't on the scale of potter where you know that in november a whole eyes of the entire universe are going to be scorching down on what you're making and then <laughs> yeah. kind of do on it was it was you know a wild ride and i say uh worked on uh so worked peripherally on the original uh philosopher's stone yeah it, uh, chamber of secrets um rolled on to prisoner of azkaban for the following year where the idea was to to take the game engine that we had uh, and then to expand on it by giving you the ability to play not only as uh, Harry, but Ron and Hermione. Good, and yeah. switch those. So the idea being that we sort of took the explorable Hogwarts and the idea of giving those guys different abilities, which was kind of tricky because they're all human. It's it's one of those kind of things that in, the, uh, uh, in most video games, you've got one character that flies, one character that's human, and then one character that's a giant robot or something like that. So they distinctly have different abilities. Here you have three kids that were all playing the same magic. So it was real kind of, how do we do this? And if I remember rightly, we kind of gave um, Ron the ability to accidentally get away with stuff that nobody else could. Yeah. Mine was a little bit smaller, so she could crawl through things that you could. So we could create a few gates that allowed you okay. to play only for those, and then also give them particular spells that were for those. I so, uh, did that one. Uh, and then moving on to Goblet of Fire, the brief that came down the point for that one was um, to make a multiplayer game where rather than switch, uh, switching between them, multi- up to three people could play on the same screen, right. Harry, Ron, and Hermione at the same time, um, which meant for start, the idea of making an explorable Hogwarts that we'd done for the past two games had to take a backseat. We just couldn't do it. It yeah. had to be more like your kind of Lego Star Wars type game where all the characters are bound on the screen and the screen moves with them. Yeah. You can't be going, well, I want to go to Defense of the Against the Dark Arts. No, I'm going downstairs. Um, which was a good thing because at that point also uh, EA had bought Criterion and mm. Renderware. And uh, so the idea was that we had to also move on to the Renderware engine, which was good at a lot of things, but not particularly good at making an explorable Hogwarts because the... Um, Work that Andy and I had done on, um, supported by the, the code team on the first two. Um, the code team had created almost like a, a language, uh, language that we could write our own logic yeah. in. In fact, actually, on the first one, I ended up writing the logic for the AI prefix in it. It was that flexible. Um, that enabled us to create very, very complicated scripts to do all the day-night sort of gameplay. And if you have this object trigger that character, he will then say this, and then you can have with them, move into here, do this, trigger these animations and everything. Renderware was much more visual and uh, very much a case of you're in a level, you hit this trigger, something happens, it's more enemies and stuff like that. So actually the whole shift of the game changed at that point and we ended up making kind of much more an arcade, um, three people on the screen playing together uh, sort of thing. And as a Goblet of Fire has in its storyline um, those big Triwizard Tournament things, mm. there was a lot of effort taking a separate team and going, right, okay, then do the Dragon Chase, do the Unwater um, Sequence, do the end sequence uh, in that, that way sort of thing. So that's why that became its own style of game. Uh, and then the final one that I was involved in was 
Marvel's uh, Order of the Phoenix. Mm. Uh, the interesting thing was, and it was quite gratifying as well, was the feedback from Goblin's Fire was, we enjoyed what you did, but we really missed the explorable Hogwarts. Mm. Explorable Hogwarts had been something that I know that Andy Kerridge and I had really put our hearts and souls into on the very first two. Yeah. If I was a Harry Potter fan, I'd want to be sneaking off and exploring a yeah. Hogwarts that was as authentic to the books as possible. What yeah. we've done is, is actually um, taken every reference from all the books at, to the point that we were, that we were out, um, noted them down, squared them off with uh, what was in J.K. Rowling's original notes. So you could go up to the third floor to the Defense Against the Dark Arts Catering and know that there is a secret passageway that gives you a one-way shoot down to floor two. Mm. All of those things, we'd actually work those in. When it came to doing Order of the Phoenix, it was like, okay, then how do we take this further? Um, one of the things that happened um, during the cycle of, of Potter was the relationship with Warner Brothers and everything had, it had always been good, but it had got even more close and integrated and we were working closer with the guys that were working on the film because obviously they've got their own pressures. They've got to make it. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't want it by anybody or whatever. So the, the sort of relationship and trust built up over the years of working. And in fact, actually, I was privileged enough to go to the set nice. and tour the sets, uh, which was quite astonishing. And it was a, a really wild day sitting there in the canteen having food. You've got all of the cast, all the kids in their Quidditch gear and their robes, all this kind of thing. Be sure to catch part two straight after this.